Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to update you on the Between the Covers Patreon campaign, which has surpassed its second of four milestones to secure its future sustainability as a podcast, and do a shout out to some of the recent contributors. Mary Jane, a teacher and performer of improv in Grand Rapids, Brian, a writer who upped his support, and at iTunes, Indie Summit, who left an iTunes rating and review, another way you can support the show, and Kyle Miner, who also did the same, the author of my favorite book from 2014, Praying Drunk. If you're curious about the Patreon campaign, about becoming a supporter of the show, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Between the Covers. You can also find other means and methods to support the program by going to davidnaman.com slash support. And you can check out the websites of all sorts of uh, creative and interesting people who have supported the show so far at davidnaman.com slash patrons. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Paul Tatangi, is the author of two novels, Red Weather and Evil Knievel Days, both from Random House Books. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, Sports Illustrated, Granta, and Tin House, among others. And his story, Regeneration, was the recipient of a 2000 Pushcart Prize in fiction. Tutangi received his MFA in Poetry and a PhD in English Literature from Cornell University, and is currently an Associate Professor of English at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. Tutangi is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his latest book, his first book-length foray into nonfiction entitled Dog Gone and published by Knopf. Poet Mark Doty, speaking of Dog Gone, says, Tutangi lights up the ways the love between human and dog brings both species to hilarity gratitude, deep sorrow, and a tenderness so real you can't help but touch it. Tom Bissell says, doggone's got humor, pathos, gorgeous prose, and details arranged with the precision of a jeweler. And Dean Kuntz says that it is in this moving, suspenseful, elegantly written story, Tatangi explores how a dog can be a loom that weaves together many souls into a beautiful fabric. Welcome to Between the Covers, Paul Tatangi. Thanks, David. Thanks for inviting me. So after you finished Evil Knievel Days, I read that you were working on a very ambitious project, one that you wanted to have great historical and political sweep, and you mentioned a war and peace-like book, and you wrote about other writers who got mired in these very ambitious, large projects, and one of them you mentioned was Michael Shaban, who infamously has this book that never got published that was really long, um, super ambitious, took years. And then something prompted him to pivot, and, same, and the same with you, to something that was much more individual and, and uh, focused in on a, on a smaller tale, potentially. And for him, it was Wonder Boys, and for you, it was Dog Gone. So tell us a little bit about this abandoned project, and then tell us um, what is it that made you turn from it and, and were pulled into the Dog Gone story? Uh, that's a great question. Oh, but I'm so in love with my abandoned project, and it's not completely abandoned. It's still alive and 
barking at me, so to speak. <laughs> um, you know, it's um, it's titled "No War, No Peace," um, which is humiliating in a way to uh, to speak out loud somehow. Um, and uh, it is actually <clears throat> a reworking of "War and Peace," um, f- with all that entails. Uh, we uh, it's it's not a um, small project. Uh, I'm definitely overwhelmed by it, and uh, I have about 1,300 pages right now. So um, it keeps growing, and the ending is getting farther and farther away. So I'm not sure exactly what will happen with it, but perhaps it will live in my desk drawer forever. Well, tell us what captivated you to turn from it and create this book in in the middle of it then. Yeah. Well, uh, this is a story that is a family story, and I wrote a little chunk of it, the very beginning of it, uh, and read it out loud to my in-laws at dinner. And I've never had a more enthusiastic reaction for a piece of work that I have produced. Ginny, my mother-in-law, was so excited to have this story that she had been badgering Peyton, my wife, with for a very long time, badgering in a sweet way. Well, we um, should say that this is the story, a story of your in-laws. Yes. The lore of that. your in-laws. The lore of my in-laws and their lost dog, Gonker. And uh, Gonker goes missing on the Appalachian Trail, and Ginny goes to n- all any length to try and find him. And uh, and so this is the family story. You know, it's the famous family story. It's the family, the story that if you have 30 minutes and you sit down with the marshals, you'll get this story. So um, I was really, um, I wanted to write it as, I was interested, I wanted to write it as a maybe a Christmas present for Ginny. And I so I, st- I started writing it. She loved it. Her husband, John, who's a very charismatic salesman, uh, loved it and, you know, f- just supported my writing of it, and and so it was it was really fun. So, I, I read that when you first heard the story of of your in laws, you thought, oh, this could be a great essay, and then later you started hearing more enough that you were like, no, this is a book. So, what I would love to hear, um, what about it? Maybe you could talk about what about it. Um, made it feel like a book project versus an essay project. Well, a lost dog is an anecdote, right? It's a tiny thing. Um, People lose dogs all the time, even if the dog happens to wander 111 miles, which is what Gonker did, a very long distance. It's still not a book. But when I was talking with Ginny, I really saw some of the pain that was behind her search. And to me, that illuminated her character in this way that I'd never seen before. Uh, And to me... That's what a book does. It's an illumination of an individual and a rendering of an individual in a way that can make us understand something about ourselves or or the common drives of humanity. And so that's what happened with her when I started thinking about this project. So she became closer to me, and I saw the trauma in her past and how that had affected her present, and then it started to feel like a book. It started to feel much bigger. One of the things that immediately I I loved and found fascinating about it was the way you set it up in the author's note in the prologue. So I'm hoping you'll read the prologue for us so that we yes. can then have a discussion about it, because you 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 approached some questions that I had about the project right away. And you um, you also defamiliarize what a lot of people might expect to be a, a familiar tale from, from the get-go. So if, if you'll read the prologue for Doggone, that would be fantastic. Absolutely. <clears throat> prologue, Saturday, October 10th, 1998. A beautiful day on the eastern seaboard, close to 65 degrees and sunny, with the scent of autumn in the air and the deciduous trees firing the Appalachians into a blaze of yellow, red, and orange. William Jefferson Clinton was deep into his tenure as the 42nd President of the United States of America. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Great War of Africa, 
a war that would eventually claim the lives of nearly 5.4 million people, had just begun. In the West Caribbean Sea, atmospheric pressure plummeted as a mesoscale convective complex, Hurricane Mitch, the second deadliest Atlantic hurricane of all time, brewed off the coast of Jamaica. The first truly international Windows-based computer virus, the Chernobyl virus, was crashing hard drives intercontinentally. In Kosovo, the U.S. envoy Richard Holbrook held talks with Slobodan Milosevic to resolve the humanitarian crisis, easing tensions between ethnic Albanians and Kosovar Serbs. In Wyoming, four people were charged in the abduction and beating of Matthew Shepard, who lay unconscious in a Laramie hospital, where he would die two days later. In the North Hills neighborhood of Los Angeles, local leaders gathered to dedicate Penny Lane, a county-sponsored apartment complex meant to give housing, education, and counseling to young people with emotional problems. And, on the Appalachian Trail, somewhere on the Blue Ridge Parkway, a golden retriever named Gonker disappeared. He bolted into the trees. He didn't return. Gonker's story, lost in the wilderness, lost and then sought, sought relentlessly and seemingly beyond the point of hope, is familiar. It's familiar because it's really a story about duty and death, about the way our past shapes our present, and the way we fill our necessary roles most vividly in a crisis. It's a story about responsibility and illness and abuse and generations within a family. It has a megaphone, a map, a mental hospital, a yogi, the governor of Virginia, and, of course, a rare genetic disorder that is both fast-acting and fatal. And it starts, as you might, or might not, imagine, in a five-star hotel on the banks of the Uka River in downtown Yokohama, Japan. You've been listening to Paul Tatongi read the prologue of Doggone. So when I interviewed Mary Gateskill about her latest book, The Mayor, we talked about her... She's just so amazing. We talked about her ambivalence about the jacket copy to her book, which to her sounded very Hollywood. And in her case, the jacket copy reads, the story of a Dominican girl, the Anglo woman who introduces her to riding, and the horse who changes everything for her. Uh, and it seems like this description, to me, appeals to a sort of story that is familiar to us, uh, a story um, that is framed in a familiar way and then perhaps is comforting to some readers because it is familiar. Um, but I was wondering, like, given how peculiar and strange and surprising your your prologue is, the way you frame the beginning of Doggone, whether you had any ambivalence about the exterior of the book versus the interior of the book, um, the way the book was put forth as an object and marketed and, and on sale versus the actual text. Um, for the subtitle of your book, A Lost Pet's Extraordinary Journey and the Family Who Brought Him Home, kind of like Gateskill's jacket copy, makes an appeal to universal tropes. Um, but the pages themselves, as you say, they promise a megaphone, a map, a mental hospital, a yogi, the governor of Virginia, a five-star hotel in Japan, and a rare lethal genetic disorder. Uh, did you have any ambivalence about the exterior part, the public part of the book as a, as an object? I mean, that's a great question, David. And it's, I mean, I think it's a, also a pretty complicated question. I, I think that, so what do I think? I think that it's a two-edged sword, um, to use a cliche, um, because on the one hand, a publisher like Knopf wouldn't be interested in the story if they didn't see this sales potential within it. Because if you're on the inside of publishing, which I feel like I am to a certain degree, it's hard not to get deeply, deeply, deeply cynical about it and about the ways that commerce drives the industry. And, um, and But not only does commerce drive the industry, 
commerce insidiously drives the industry masquerading as anything else other than commerce. So it masquerades as exciting debut novels, or it masquerades as um, a whole host of other things. And then, and then it actually enters the culture, and as it enters the culture, this sort of commercial um, impulse gets altered and transformed, and then becomes something entirely different. Um, you know, I, so it actually then is no longer commerce, really, but its original motivation was commerce. And in fact, maybe at no point during the entire acquisition of the title did an editor or the writer or the agent position the thing that they were selling as a commercial object. Mm. They spoke in this cloaked language of literature, uh, you know, which is really a disservice to all of us. So anyway, um, so eh, that was kind of a wild and crazy answer. But um, uh, basically what I'm saying is that, you know, people are interested at Knopf, they were interested in this book, I think because, sure, you know, it's it's well-written and you can pitch my bio in a certain way that makes it seem like I, you know, have uh, street cred or whatever as a writer, um, but, uh, but it's about a dog. And so that's like the fundamental reason that they buy it and they produce it, you know? And um, that's so sad. But on the other hand, it's why it got out there and it's why I'm sitting here in this chair. So... It's really complicated, and it, it, it if you're honest about it as the writer, you are in a deeply uncomfortable position, and um, and I, I think that not very many people are honest about it. You, you seem to confront this with the author's note a little bit and with the prologue in the sense that um, this conundrum of universal versus specific and familiar and unfamiliar, you say the story was something I've heard before, but something unlike anything I've heard ever heard. Um, it was something simultaneously unusual and familiar. And it makes me think of this discussion that's going on a lot now about the difference between sentiment and sentimentality. And um, particularly with certain types of narratives. So like one narrative that comes to mind is death and dying narratives. But also another narrative is with animal stories. And I think that there's no coincidence, I don't think it's a coincidence that, say, with my discussion with Mary Gateskill and she's written a book about bringing an inner kitty inner city kid up to the upstate New York to um, ride horses, that a lot of those questions came up. And similarly, perhaps with, with Dog On. Um, was this on your mind at all? And were you, in the use of the prologue and the author's note, trying to address this issue of writing with sentiment but not writing with sentimentality? It's interesting. The author's note I, was not my idea. The prologue is all me. Um, and, and sentiment versus sentimentality, I think is a great, uh, discussion, you know, and it's, I think it's extremely important to, to, um, you know, basically when you're saying right with sentiment, you're saying right with empathy, right? You know, and so have empathy for your characters and for your subject matter and whatnot. Um, the author's note, which is at the beginning of the book, um, I, I that was not me. And, um, you know, I, I can tell you stories about, why what happened in the process of selling the book, which I'm probably not supposed to tell. Should I tell you stories yeah, that I'm not it, supposed to tell? Sure. I'm sure okay. our listeners, yeah. our writer listeners would be curious. Okay. So, um, so, uh, great. This is probably not, anyway. So I the book, my agent sent the book around and, uh, editors were confused and they said, well, why is he telling this story himself? Like, why is he telling this story? This isn't his dog. <laughs> which is just so funny to me. I mean, it's just so such a stupid thing to, to say. Like, I can't see why he would... What they're really saying is, I can't pitch this to my publicity people who are important in the process of approving money for the acquisition of a title um, it, unless they, the publishing, the, the publicity people see the commercial potential in this. So uh, my agent had me write like a, one-page thing about my connection to the story and the family, and then sent that around as a follow-up to all of the editors who had been interested in the project. And so then, and that seemed to work. They seemed to be really, um, that was like, quote-unquote, exactly what they needed yeah. was the feedback that I got from my agent. 
Well, let's put the author's note aside <laughs> and just looking at this issue of craft, because you do address craft and sentiment, because you do address this issue of familiarity and unfamiliarity in the prologue as right. well. So talk a little bit about if that was a, a, a concern that you were addressing by the w- choices you made Absolutely. in the book. Absolutely. Um, I, in the book, um, at varying times, um, but certainly in the prologue, because I wanted to remember that this is a small story. If you look out in the world, even in Portland, <laughs> you will find, or anywhere, you will find 10 dozen stories that are more important than this story in, in, in some ways. Um, and I, I was conscious of that fact. You know, we live in a very um, difficult time when, you know, the, a story about a, a fairly affluent family losing its golden retriever for two weeks is not going to stand up in comparison with any of the stuff that I'm teaching. We just finished teaching Between the World and Me in Exploration and Discovery, you know, um, yesterday. And, uh, you know, now I'm teaching Chris Abani's The Face and like, and so the election, any of the stuff that's going on in our culture right now, um, the refugee crisis, you know, when this, when it's stood up next to this story, you can't say that they should have equal weight. Um, I was conscious of that, but, um, this is also a document about somebody whom I love. This is the grandmother of my children. You know, she is the grandma. This is my brother-in-law. And as a human being, I love her. I love Ginny. Uh, I love Fields, my brother-in-law. And so the thought of them suffering, which losing a pet is a suffering process, um, is very sad for me. So it's emotional. Um, and, and also for her, you know, putting aside all of these social questions, it was this really significant moment in her life because... For her, it wasn't about a lost dog, a lost golden retriever, gone for two weeks and sick and and potentially dying. It was about the fact that her mother had never cared for her, and her mother had been deeply abusive, and her mother had been an alcoholic and had never provided her with all the things that a mother should provide a daughter with. So when her son needed her and she perceived that need, you know, whether or not he wanted her to react quite as strongly as she did is another question. But she perceived that need. She desperately wanted to reach for him and comfort him. And so then this was all of a sudden not a story about a lost golden retriever, but instead it was a story about a little girl who was abused by an alcoholic mother physically and emotionally and then had children and then tried to undo those problems and tragic tragedies in the present moment and so then all of a sudden you're like oh you know actually this story can almost stand next to all these other stories in our world so the sentiment is in there so you have to sort of move beyond the sentimentality which is there as well and push it to one side and then try and access the story and the sentiment the emotional energy the drive of that story I went down a little sentimentality rabbit hole when I was looking at this question. And, and one of the people I came across was Mary Rufel, who who writes about sentimentality. Um, and she says, w- when she's talking about the word sentimentality, that we need both the sen of sensuous and the mental of the mind, that we need both sensation and thought, an abundance of feeling and an author who's thought really deeply about it. And um, it feels like that is sort of the way you've confronted this conundrum around the two things. Also, like it, as we heard in the prologue, you couch what you call a small story, even though the story itself becomes quite large within its framework. You couch it in all of these historical events. And periodically throughout the book, we get uh, Latvia's independence, the crashing of an airplane, the beating of Rodney King. Um, all these things are happening at the same time that this story is happening. Is, is that part of what you're doing about when you say you're pushing sentiment aside, but allowing space for, I mean, pushing sentimentality aside and allowing space for sentiment in a, in a peculiar way. Sure. Yeah, I think absolutely. And it's almost like you're, 
uh, diving into the wreck, to quote, you know, Adrian Rich in a way. Um, you know, uh, and Mary Rufel is a great example of that. Um, Maggie Nelson also, um, you know, it, the, it, it's um, work that is, you know, constantly battling within itself um, for, uh, for um, its own territory. So trying to, to um, establish a position um, and then uh, fighting against that position and then reaching beyond it and then pulling out this, you know, deep sentimental thing and then showing it to you and then complicating it somehow, you know, as a reader, that to me is really interesting. Yeah. That's, I, I find that fascinating. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I did that to a certain extent in the book. Although I think that saying that I, I did that and then you sort of put point to the book and read the book, it's, it's subtle. It's not in the forefront of what the book is. The book could have been told in a different way. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you could make the argument that the book is not the, the book isn't really about Gonker. I mean, it is about Gonker on one level. And for some people, maybe Gonker is the protagonist, but your mother-in-law also could, you could make an argument for putting your mother-in-law on the cover. Um, and you can make a strong case that the book is really her story. She might have liked that. I mean, actually, <laughs> I have this amazing photograph of her in these um, acid-washed jeans, you know, from like 1994 and uh, in a white billowy cotton blouse. And she's sitting on a, a grassy uh, hill with Gonker in her lap. And it's just like the most perfect. I thought, what an amazing cover image that would have been. But... Uh, they they went in a different direction. Well, well, let me ask a question about her story and the way it becomes an engine for the search for 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 their dog. Because it's not her dog; it's her son's dog. Um, but if you look at what she does in the pre-internet age, armed only with a fax machine and a phone, and the way she overturns her entire life to dedicate herself to this search, and I th I think she's getting on thousands of TV and radio stations and on the AP wire. And so basically in hundreds of countries around the world, there's some sort of mention of this search. I just, I just imagined, you know, some reporter in Germany or, or wherever, you know, and, and here is the AP newswire, which would, you know, in those days, I think was still on a dot matrix printer. And so it would just sort of hum and, you know, print out all these different stories. And out comes this little story about the lost dog in Virginia with a phone number in it, you know? Yeah. That's, a, I mean, it is amazing. And, and it, I would think if we didn't have any of this backstory for her, it would be mystifying why she's doing this. But not only do we get the backstory about sort of a family dynamic, that leads into also um, what's going on in Japan, because that's where she lives at the time, her um, post-war and what they did with their dogs in Japan, and then how that resulted in her having a dog and what happened to her dog. And I was wondering if you could just briefly touch on that because it ends up opening up into this very un unusual place right. um, based on what originally was the Golden Retriever and on the Appalachian Trail. Right, exactly. Well, so I, I pretty early on realized that I had to talk about Ginny's own childhood. And... Um, so I found, you know, this story of um, sort of what she had been through as a girl. And uh, she told it to me. And um, so she had, her, her father had been assigned to Japan after the destruction of Japan during the Second World War. And uh, he was a um, uh, uh, army uh, personnel, he was army personnel, and his job was to supervise the lists for shore leave for the officers in the U.S. Army. So he would travel around to restaurants and hotels, and he would uh, interview the owners, and then they would basically uh, feast him and his family. And so it was this very corrupt thing where, you know, he was always going to these gala celebrations and bringing Ginny, a little girl, along. Well, of course, as a little girl, you have no idea of any of the backstory for this, the war, the death, the suffering. You're just there, and you're having this kind of magical experience, which she was. Um, and it wasn't until many years later that she would evaluate it, you know, through a slightly different lens. But um, she 
so she was there for I think three or four years, four years, and um, and upon leaving, um, she was given a gift, and the gift was a puppy, an Akita puppy, and the Akita, which is the national dog of Japan, um, quote unquote, um, you know, it has this remarkable story where during the war, as the height of the deprivations um, hit the island, uh, the emperor ordered that all dogs that were not military dogs be killed because they couldn't eat food you know the they would they couldn't they couldn't be supported by the society that they were that they were in and so um many people you know agreed with this command and euthanized or shot their dogs um however some akita owners who were too distraught to do this to their beloved animals, let them go just into the wild. And some Akitas survived. 18 Akitas survived only. Wow. And so the breed <laughs> is alive today because of those you know, 18 dogs who survived. And uh, so, so almost immediately after the war, when conditions had improved slightly, um, you know, the dog owners sought out their animals or bred the existing animals and the population of Akitas revived. And so in the years after the Second World War, especially, the Akita puppy was this symbol of regeneration and um, resurgence of the Japanese nation in a way. And so when she was leaving, um, the mayor of the city where he had been stationed gave her this puppy as a gift. And she was so scared that her parents wouldn't let her keep him that she ran onto the boat. And hid. <laughs> wow. And uh, we won't spoil what, what happens right. with that story, but it does play a role also in, in her later uh, passion around the search. Yes, absolutely. So we're, we're talking today with writer Paul Tatongi about his latest book, Dog Gone. You're listening to Between the Covers. Um, given that you didn't witness the story you're dramatizing, the thing that stumped a lot of your publishers of why you were writing the book, um, uh, right that you came to the story as an outsider, that you married into a family and into this family story. Um, how did you go about doing research? It sounds like w from the beginning of our conversation that your family was enthusiastic about this story being told and, and wanted your wife to tell it originally. But now that you're writing it, it, it seems like doing this, especially with the pain and the trauma involved, there might be some potential pitfalls. So how did that how did that happen? How did you approach it? What were your goals and and rules? Well, I was very careful. <laughs> um, I uh, my goal was not to create discord between uh, Ginny, my mother-in-law, and uh, myself, and uh, and still tell the story in as honest a way uh, as was possible. And so. Um, as a result of that, I showed her all of the drafts, and she gave me comments. She actually um, flew out, not specifically to, to do this, but flew out to see her grandkids, my kids, and then we sat down, and she had notes page by page by page. So she literally had printed, well, not literally, she had printed out the manuscript, and so we sat at the dining room table, and we went through it page by page, and she, you know, had a lot of factual corrections and but then also like stylistic you know um c concerns or 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 questions or you know well this scene shouldn't break here or just like which was kind of amazing right it was sort of incredible but uh so that i was lucky in that and so i had a lot of conversations with her and she was aware that i was telling the story and then she sort of became uh, aware that I was asking questions about her childhood and and she shared these things with me knowing that I would put them down on on paper and and you know she was hesitant to share uh, the details of her abuse with uh, the world such as it the world of books is um, but um, you know so but she was she uh, she eventually a uh, she said, basically, if someone out there had an unredeemed, awful childhood of this kind, where they were abused, where they endured the alcoholism of a parent, um, 
that if somehow her story, seeing her story, reading her story could help them, then she was willing to share her story for that. So did, that was her. Did you have any, I know that memoirists and nonfiction writers have totally different ethos around writing about people either in their family or who are alive who aren't in their family potentially, but did anybody have veto power? I mean, I know you're not, it's not just your mother-in-law's story. There's also some you know, health issues of different characters in the book also and other things. Well, Fielding, fortunately, it, my brother-in-law is tremendously uh, forgiving. He's, you know, a kayaker in Chile and he lives down there. And uh, I'm, he, I don't, I think he knows how to read. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but no, I, so I, I sent him the stuff, and he, he actually said, do I have to read it? And I said, well, you probably should. And uh, he said, well, I'll just read the parts that are about me. So yeah. anyway, but uh, but no, um, so, she, well, yeah, I gave her veto power. I mean, she, uh, she didn't want her mother's real name in there. Um, there was another thing that she wanted to cut out. Um, she actually has a sister who she was in the, who was in the, uh, manuscript, and she said, "Well, can we figure out a way to tell the story without her in it?" And um, mm. and so we did that. Yeah. Well, uh, on the issue of of, I know this isn't technically a memoir. You're not a. You're. It sort of is, and sort weird of weird thing. It is because you're you're not in it, and you're sort of in it. Um, but there's a de- there's a debate within memoir about how much you're allowed to imagine. It seems like right. it's generally accepted that. Um, it's okay to reimagine dialogue, something that we cannot um, remember accurately. So in all memoir, we, we, we're, we're recreating dialogue in good faith, but realizing that, that the dialogue is not necessarily what you actually heard. But then there are other people, um, say like Knausgaard and Sebald, who use a lot of fictional elements, who, who intentionally muddy the waters and, and um, bring in fec- fictional techniques to make things more real and dimensional, even if they're telling a true, essentially true story. But given that you weren't a witness to the events and this isn't fully a memoir, I'm guessing you felt like you had more leeway, but I, I wanted to talk to you, just ask you a question about that and around building scenes where you weren't there because I'm guessing you were using a lot of fictional elements. Like when I imagine fielding, there's one page where fielding, your brother-in-law is sweeping back a mildewed floral print curtain in room 118 of the Super 8. And I'm like... Do you really know it's floral? Do you really know it's mildewed? Is it really room 118? Not that it matters. It doesn't matter. But it feels like the details make me feel more convincingly there. So did you feel the, the um, how did you deal with that question of, of truthiness? and, and Truthiness. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. Bigly. I dealt with it bigly. <laughs> it's a really fantastic book. Um, no, uh, Look, um, that's a great question, and this has been a really fun conversation. Um, I, that's a great question. <laughs> I said, I'll say it again. Um, so, so, I'll answer that in a few different ways. Izzy Persick, you know, Izzy Ismet Persick, the writer. Um, he's a Portland novelist and wrote Shards, and he, um, so he, you know, says, well. In Bosnia, there's no genre. There's no such thing. This is just not nonfiction and fiction. There's just books, you know. And um, it's okay. I can impersonate Izzy. He he lets me. <laughs> but um, but you know, um, so he that's what he believes. And uh, I love Sebald. Love Sebald. Um, you know, Austerlitz is one of my favorite five, six favorite books. Whatever. Um, the mildew print, the mildew of the floral print curtain in room 118. It's such a great question, right? Because it's impossible for me to say, oh, well, I, you know, got on the phone and I called the motel and I <laughs> went through, you know, 27 years ago or whatever. And I guess it was, hold on, it was uh, 18 years ago, you know, the, the records. And I found the room number that they stayed in and I asked the manager who didn't who wasn't the manager then but he gave me the phone number of the guy <laughs> who was the manager and I called him and I said what right. kind of curtain you know I can make up some story like yeah. that and that, that would was, be must have taken a lot of time for you to it do took all that so much time it was just those curtains in yeah. that room and I would love actually some part of me would just love to make up that story because I'm a liar yeah. I'm a fiction writer you know right. fiction writers are liars like I swear to god Pete Rock said you know 
I, he was on the air I, I, for one of his books, and he said, like, well, I, I, heard th- I read this study where people who are doing the thing that they were best at when they were 12 are happiest in life, and I'm happiest in life because when I was 12, I loved to lie. Hmm. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and so, I mean, there's some element of that. Like, writers are liars. And, and then, but, but you have to be serious about these things. You can't, because once you're presenting something as nonfiction, you get into Mike Daisy territory or, you know, some other, um, many of these nonfiction writers, James Fry, who have, uh, presented things that are, um, just not true. And, and then, you know, been excoriated for it. So, um, so, you know, it's complicated. It's complicated. Um, uh, as for that s- specific curtain, you know, I've stayed in so many crappy motels and I... So you're an expert. I'm an expert. Yeah. And so that, so I've, you know, they always have a floral print. It's, it's like taupe. It's like this taupe color yeah. with like a green stitching and like a little pink tulip. And like I can see it, you know. Yeah. So and uh, so, there you go. That's so I grafted my own experience onto that scene, and yes, that is the specific detail that makes you believe in the scene. Right. Yeah. So it's an interesting paradox from from a craft perspective. It's an interesting paradox from a craft perspective. Yeah. Well, another thing that I think makes the read compelling is that there's this mirroring between Fielding and Gonker. So there's some mysterious illness that Fielding has in the book. He doesn't confront it. So he's he's ignoring his symptoms. Uh, and all throughout the book, we know there's something not good going on with his body um, that he's not prioritizing to investigate. But the dog, at one point when Fielding's not eating, Gonker won't eat. So there's this mirroring that happens. But there's also a mirroring in the plot, which I think adds a lot of suspense that Gonker himself has a disease and part of the alarm of him disappearing is if he doesn't get his next shot in 20 days he's he's a goner so um toast so we have two two parallel uh, dog and owner mirroring plot points but it made me wonder also if like if you had done any research on dog behavior or on dog human history and if you did do that um if you had any like points that you might want to share that were particularly unusual or cool that um, well, you, you discovered. Know, I did a ton of re- research and reading. Um, the This book, How Dogs Think by Stanley Corwin is a really, really interesting book. Um, and, you know, I also read um, the Andrea Horowitz book, um, which the title of which is now just evaporating from my brain uh, in the studio here. But, um, uh, it, you know, talking about um, the ways that... Uh, dogs have developed in concordance with humans and um and i think that there 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 actually have been last summer there were a, a number of books about animals and about the ways that animals think and even some books saying maybe that we as a species do not have the capacity to understand the way that animals think. Maybe they think in an entirely different way than we do, and it's not something that we can access, um, which is very possible. It's certainly something that I thought about. Um, I, I, I think that with Gonker and Fielding, that bond was pretty extreme. When you adopt a dog as a puppy, they imprint on you, you know, um, and... It, it, it did that did actually happen where when he was ill, Gonker wouldn't eat. And he could tell, he could tell that Fields was sick. I know that sounds ridiculous, but he could tell that Fields was sick. And um, he was deeply devoted to him. Mm. And uh, you know, I think I think that 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 tie between humans and and dogs is a deep and abiding tie. Well, you, you did write one chapter from Gonker's point of view, and I'm curious... Oh, there were more. And I'm curious how how that was for you, A, and B, did you look at any other examples in literature? I know Mark Doty writes writes poetry from from his dog's perspective. He does. Um, did you look 
how, how did it feel to inhabit an animal's consciousness as an, as a point of view? And then, and did you go anywhere to look? I'm a dog. 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 I, I think I feel like that's what dogs <laughs> are thinking. They're just thinking like, I'm a dog. I'm a dog. I'm a dog. Um, uh, you know, I had more chapters, many more chapters. <laughs> it was actually a, a a narrative pillar of the book was Gonker out on the trail, which uh, Knopf had me remove, and they were very um, they were very kind of derisive about it. Um, and I guess that when Tim, my editor, acquired the book, some other editor, and you have, I mean, there you're editing like Alice Monroe, Salman Rushdie, like, you know, these are like the, and the editors have been there for, you know, and close has been there for 50 years and like, you know, and, uh, I guess one of them photocopied a page out of Tolstoy and, you know, the Laska scene that I quoted there and brought it to Tim and said, you know, this, I can't believe you want to acquire this. This is, here is real writing from the animal's perspective and gave him, you know, Tolstoy, wow. this scene. And, uh, and Tim shared this with me to his, uh, to his credit. Um, but, uh, but so there was this very sort of, um, funny, um, sort of pushing away of it, I think, um, by some, maybe some people in the, in the house, but, um, but I think there's that bias against it generally in literary fiction oh, yeah. versus in say fa fable and fairy tale it would of course you would do it right and i wonder why there's that bias maybe because it's mostly it's done gauche. done poorly it's mostly done poorly and i i think it's um it's like it's embarrassing it's somehow it's somehow gauche it's it's not you can't until you until uh, Khodorowsky, you know does it with like uh in his film or like i don't know you know it's like i it's 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 like it's embarrassing, um, you know. It's um, but it works in doggone. <laughs> the, the whatever was whatever remained of all of that that you put into it that they allowed to stay. It's not like it bumps you out of the narrative and you're like, oh my god, this, what is he doing? Right. Well, that's yeah. They they, yeah. I think it's probably one page left from about twenty five. So, um, I, I I was what was he thinking about? all that time. I yeah. mean, I was, you know, I was thinking about that as well. And I was reading about animal thoughts and imagining myself into his mind. And, and the, I mean, the way that dogs pay attention to things is very driven by external stimuli. So they will smell something and it will make them shift their attention towards something else. So I'm imagining him on the one hand, Searching, 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 111 miles, constantly searching. But then on the other hand, being distractible because he's just a dog. And, and you know, I wondered, I mean, poor guy, you know, I wondered, did he miss fielding? Right. S certainly, you know, you see, if you've ever had a dog, you know, you know that you go to the store and you come home and they're just like, where have you been? Oh my God, you're home. Thank God you're home. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. You know? <laughs> and, uh, so imagine like not just an absence of 30 minutes. It's an absence yeah. of, you know, you're going to have to do the voice for the movie. 11 days. Oh, I want, I, I want, <laughs> yeah. Oh, please, please let me. And, well, well, to pivot to an entirely different conversation, in your author's bio, you you forget foreground that you're a first generation American, that both your parents are immigrants, your mom from Latvia, your dad from Egypt, and if we look at your three books, your first novel engages with Latvia, your second novel with Egypt, and your third with the backstory of your wife's family. It, it looks like family history, origin stories are a big motivating factor behind your writing, and and I wondered if that felt like that was a true statement and if you had any um, personal theories about why that's the engine behind a lot of what you write. That's interesting. Um, uh, for me, I mean, my first two books um, came out of my own sense of identity and uh, this strange between space that I occupied with um, being raised you know, within the Latvian community in 
America speaking Latvian um, with an Egyptian father, which then immediately sort of marked me as not a part of the Latvian community because of different issues within that community itself. Um, and, um, and then uncovering the heritage that my father um, sort of not concealed isn't the right word, but turned away from um, in the project of making himself into an American. So um, I was always conscious of my own ethnic otherness. You know, you can't have a name like Pulse Tatangi and, you know, not constantly be aware that, you know, this is, uh, you're not Sam Jones, you know, you know, so, so I, I was conscious of that always, 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 always. And so it was natural for me to write Red Weather. I felt like it came out of a language that I spoke, um, and, um, a cultural space that I myself inhabited, um, Evil Knievel Days was more of a uh, reach in a way, but it was also something that I was uncovering about myself and my family at the time I was writing it. So I was going back to Egypt with my dad. He went back for the first time in 65 years to research the book. And, um, you know, we went to Cairo together and, and saw the church where he had stolen cucumbers from the nuns 65 years previously and never forgiven himself. And uh, so, you know, there, there, a, a, a lot of that um, sort of experience was going, feeding into my novel. And, um, and, you know, with this third book, it's sort of my American book, right? It's all set in America. It's got George Washington in it, um, you know? And uh, it's about, you know, as Americans you get, can get. Um, so, um, as are Peyton, my wife's Peyton Marshall's family, the Marshalls have been here on her dad's side for 300 and some years. They're direct genealogical descendants of John Marshall, the first Supreme Court, wow. the first justice, uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court. Um, you know, they have a bust, a wax bust of John Marshall that was commissioned by him in 18-whatever, um, in their house, and has been handed down from generation to generation. Like, so it's wow. like this, there's two in the world. So it's like, and it's like <laughs> right there in the, in the, in, so, so you cannot get, you know, sort of more American than that. And um, so this was my American book. So when we, when we loop back to that big project that you're still continuing on, that, that is getting larger and the ending is receding from you, is that in some way a book of, of synthesis between all these different parts here? You're focusing on the Latvian and the Egyptian and then the American, or is it not at all related to, to uh, these different threads? Well, it's an interesting thing. So it, I, I don't know. I don't know. That book is such a tangle. I know that I have this strange relationship with Tolstoy because um, so my great uncle was the first sort of main uh, translator of Tolstoy into Latvian in uh, Latvia after the First World War. So he was this guy, Asians Mindenbergs. And so he translated Tolstoy into Latvian and was kind of the, the preeminent Tolstoy scholar and stayed in Latvia until he died in 1965. Um, and But so... My family was involved with that project, but at the same time, I grew up in this intensely anti-Russian environment. So I may have been the only kid in America who, like, secretly read Tolstoy because <laughs> it was, like, a banned work, basically, yeah. Russian, you know, colonial. Because of Lot, because of your Latvian heritage. Yeah, yeah. The, my parents were refugees—my mom was a refugee, my grandmother was a refugee from— the Soviet invasion of Latvia. So it was Tolstoy was Russian and like, you know, this huge, it was this terrible thing. And when I took uh, Russian in grad school, uh, it was like, I like dreaded telling my mother that I was taking Russian because it was like this evil language, you know, in her mind. So, um, so, 
you know, so I have this baggage around Tolstoy and trying to sort of remake him and take him and make him my own. So I don't know, maybe it is a synthesis somehow. Um, I love that idea. Yeah. Of you grappling with the actual book and having the book be part of the title. And, and yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I, 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 so, so I put this writer in there who's writing, <laughs> writing. So, um, but anyway, it's a long story. He's writing, he's writing War and Peace, but he's right. It's like Pierre Menard, the author of the real, you know, Quixote. And he's like yeah. rewriting War and Peace, but anyway. <laughs> you don't want to go I, on with I that can't, one? No, I'm just no. going to, I'm just going to stop there. All right. Well, let me ask you another question. Um, you did your MFA in poetry. Yeah. And here we have three, three books of prose. And I'm curious, um, in retrospect, was, was poetry, uh, a detour or a part of becoming a prose writer? Or is there a way you see a certain poetics in your work or are are you writing poetry on the side and, and someday we'll see your poetry collection? Someday. Yeah, because the world is clamoring for my poetry collection. Um, my, uh, the poems, I mean, I'm writing poems very rarely now. I've probably written five poems in the last 10 years, um, like for the birth of my kids, that kind of a thing. I love poetry, and I think that the attention to language that is necessary within poetry and the specificity of uh, the vocabulary of poetry and the the necessity for it to be challenging um, and to uh, ignore conventional cliche language, um, all of that is very exciting and important to me. Um, so on the level of the sentence, my work that I did as a poet, I think, was very important. That said, I kind of made a choice to go into prose, and m my voice as a poet is atrophied. You know, it's it is where it was in two thousand and two, and so I can't do stuff that I probably should be able to do if I'd kept, you know, writing for fourteen years or whatever. So, um, I don't know what that means. Uh, it it just means that I went to grad school for poetry and then immediately stopped writing poetry forever. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what that what that says. So so what can we expect from you next? Uh, is it no this? war, no peace. <laughs> <laughs> so you're optimistic. Is that, oh. the, is that the next project for you? Oh my God. Well, I'm working on it and I'm, 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 um, hoping it's going to be, to come out. I'm, I am, I have this essay that I, I've been working on about my grandfather who, so my dad was born in Egypt, but he's about as Egyptian as I am, you know, American in that he was born there in exile um, and the family had, for many hundreds of years, were from Aleppo. And so um, I wrote about my grandfather's childhood in Aleppo. And and uh, and that's kind of a narrative piece that is about, depending on the edits, between three and 6,000 words. So I'm trying to place it right now. And, and that has poetry in it. It does have poetry in it. My grandfather's poems, yeah. 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 So French poems that he wrote his whole life. It's kind of an amazing story. So he, he was a hundred. He was almost a hundred years old. He's ninety eight years old. I know we're running out of time. And he um, he went to uh, France with my dad, who was at that time, God, he must have been seventy. Yeah, definitely close, right around seventy. And uh, his friend, Father Logan, um, a priest, a Jesuit priest, who was a hundred. And so my 70-year-old father, my 98-year-old grandfather, and a 100-year-old priest went to France together to try and get my grandfather's book of poems published because in 1939, before the Second World War, a French publishing house had contracted his book of poems. And then the war had come and the, the house closed, never reopened. Right. And so... Or maybe it, it did reopen. And so then anyway, they went back and they like met with the editor who was the successor of this uh, house and like trying to convince him to publish these like quaint rhyming devotionals to, you know, the sacred heart of Jesus and like, and, uh, you know, didn't work out. But uh, I don't know why I got on that story. <laughs> but so I, I started writing about that. So I don't know. So maybe I'm uh, that I was, I've been writing essays about that kind of thing and, and uh, and then working on this giant unwieldy novel beast. 
Well, I look forward to uh, that beast coming out in the future. Thanks for being on Between the Covers today. Oh, thanks. Paul. It was so fun. We're talking today to writer Paul Tatangi about his latest book, Doggone. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.